0: Luke chapter 10. If you have a copy of the scriptures tonight, we encourage you to turn up in Luke's Gospel, the 10th chapter, as we continue on in our study. So we have in the previous chapter, the sending forth of the twelve, they're encouraged in their first ministry, their first outing. We come into Luke chapter 10, and we have another 70 that are appointed to be sent before the face of the Lord Jesus Christ as he commences his uh, kind of long journey towards Jerusalem in which he's going to revisit various cities and towns and villages where he has been before, and he is sending these, uh, these men paired up in twos to go and give warning, to preach and prepare the way. And we have come as far as verse 16. Our Lord Jesus has given instruction as to what they are to do and what they may expect. The the lament of his heart in verse 13 the cities that had been so mightily privileged and many of them had not received christ they had rejected him and so their judgment is going to be worse there will be a judgment day it is appointed on to men once to die and after this the judgment we thought of that theme a little already this morning and It is true, there is a judgment day that awaits us all, an appointment that we cannot escape, that we cannot change. Uh, We will keep that appointment, and we will stand before the Lord. Every man will give account of himself before God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the teaching of Scripture. But we then see something of the experience of the 70 from verse 17, and this is where we've come to. So, Luke chapter 10, verse 17 And we'll read just as far as through verse 20, which is what we're considering this evening. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Amen. And may the Lord give us eyes to see the truth of His Word tonight. Let's pray. Let's pray to that end and look for His help. Father, we thank Thee for the praises of Thy people. We thank Thee that we were so blessed in this place to have a people that love to sing the praises of the Lord. And it is, it is such an encouragement, such a strengthening in our own souls. It would be lamentable if we were standing here and everyone was singing in a whisper. It was as if we had no heart and no joy in the gospel. But we do have joy. We have joy in Christ, a joy that is unspeakable. And we praise Thee for the privilege of singing the new song and knowing that we have been taken out of the mire and placed upon Christ the rock and given a new life, establishing our ways that we might sing praises unto Thee. Bless us tonight. Give us help in the Word. Lead us through every consideration, every utterance, Lord, I I endeavor as best I can to put myself under the sway of Thy Spirit and to be true to Thy Word. Lead us and help us and show Thyself in our midst, we pray, even in saving souls. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Last Wednesday, as I was just about to leave for prayer meeting, I, I went to pick up uh, my shoes and my glasses, which were both kind of by the chair, I'd taken my shoes off by the sofa, and I would set my glasses down as well, right in the same spot, and I had gotten up and left them there uh, for part of the afternoon. And so when I went to get my shoes and, and get my glasses, lo and behold, as I picked up my glasses, I realized that someone had stepped on them, and that they were somewhat uh, bent, let's just say. <laughs> And so I'm quickly trying to panic and wondering, can I even wear these things to prayer meeting? Trying to twist them into some sort of salvageable shape to go to the prayer meeting. And uh, we did that and then headed off to the prayer meeting uh, and met with those of you that were here on Wednesday night. Anyway, so the next day, of course, I thought, you know, these things still aren't right. So I went off to uh, take them to a a gentleman that I've been to before, and uh, I and handed the glasses to him and said, you know, can, can you straighten these things out for me? And so he happily took them and began to work on them. And I've spoken to him before, as I've said, and uh, on this particular occasion we, we got to talking and I think I've spent, I think the last time I was in with him, it was maybe about an hour talking to him and it was close to an hour on Thursday as well. But the reason I bring it up is in the midst of the conversation conversation, um, I mean, we've talked about church. We've talked about the Lord. Uh, I don't believe he's saved, but we've talked about those things and sought to uh, talk in a way that may be helpful to him. His experience in church has not been great. He told me at one time, and I'm, I'm taking him at his word. I, I'm assuming this is true. He, one time he was in a particular church, and uh, they, they locked everyone in until they gave to whatever the project was that they were raising money for. And uh, so his experience of church hasn't always been the most positive. And, I, and <laughs> I'm reassuring him, like, we're not those kind of people. <laughs> but anyway, um, he started talking about the world, the state of the world, all that's going on in the world. And he said to is the conversation, you know what would be best if, if we could just be like it used to be? If we, if the, we had no access to the, to the media networks, to the Internet, all the misinformation, all the nonsense, all the garbage. He said it just would be best if we, we didn't have all that. Coming at us every day. And in one sense, I, I agree with him. I, I get his point. I think there may be, it's very easy for us to look back and imagine there never was any propaganda before perhaps 100 years ago, which is nonsense. And there's never been any kind of misinformation that has been shared among the populace and things said or taught or instructed or pronounced or declared in order to manipulate a certain response among the populace. All of that's always gone on. But, but I, as I say, I, I get his point. And, and I feel it. I actually feel it not just with individuals like him, but particularly here. Every week I come and stand before you and every week your cup is full, full of doom and gloom. You know, unless you really have been shutting yourself off and you're disciplined in that way, really, if if you're listening, if you're aware, if you're uh, uh, somewhat keeping abreast of things from a day-to-day, in a day-to-day fashion, it's doom and gloom. It is doom and gloom. It's all miserable, and I feel this kind of sense that you come here every week, your cup is full of doom and gloom, and I have to fight to try and empty that and then refill it with the joy of what we have in Christ. And yet, at the same time, we all need to be fighting for joy in our lives. We need to fight for joy, not in the sense that we're trying to seize upon something that is outside our grasp, but we need to take the time and exercise the discipline of bringing ourselves back to the things that we know are true. And whatever's going on in our lives, whatever we're facing, whatever may be causing anxiety and concern and worry and frustration, whatever's going on out there, whatever's going on in your world, even. It doesn't have to rob you of your joy. You need to preach to yourself the things that remain the same. And I hope tonight that we don't miss that because when you come to verse 20, and we'll deal obviously with the verses that precede, but our Lord saying these words, they, they are it is so encouraging. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not. Don't, don't look to the times of success, the things that may bring you natural joy in your life. The spirits are subject unto you. Whatever you may determine is, is wonderful that's going on in the present. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And I hope we don't miss that point tonight. I hope we get that, that, that our names are written in heaven. And amidst all that changes and all that fluctuates and all that we face that's difficult and trying, our names are written in heaven. We must, therefore, fight for gospel-oriented joy. What we have in the Lord cannot be taken from us. I've illustrated this on other occasions Because my mind goes there so frequently, I think of Paul and Silas and Philippi having been beaten to within an inch of their lives, and they're imprisoned, the blood is pouring from their wounds, they've been mistreated, and at midnight they're singing praises unto God. You you can can threaten to kill, you can imprison, take away freedoms… But we still have a song, and we're going to sing it. Like the old hymn, the children of the Lord have a right to shout and sing, for their way is growing bright and their souls are on the wing. We are going by and by to the palace of a king. Glory to God. Hallelujah. I used to, I'd mentioned that before, I would say that in the place where I would work when I would sing, and they would always. Kind of tell me that, at times he would say, "Could you stop singing?" You know, <laughs> I don't know whether it was what I was singing or how I was singing, possibly the latter. But then I would sing that one. I have a right to shout and sing. I'm a child of God. I'm going to heaven. Tonight we have entitled a message "Joy for Citizens of Christ's Kingdom." Joy for citizens of Christ's kingdom. And I want us to note first of all, joy and success. Joy and success. Verse 17. The seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Note a few things very simply here. That this this joy and success is, first of all, somewhat natural. It is somewhat natural. The seventy have come back. Most of the commentators that I read seem to indicate an agreement that they don't think they've been away all that long. It hasn't been a long a trip away from the Lord, but they make their return at the appointed occasion, they come back, they return, and they're returning with joy. The indication is that all 70 are returning with joy, that they all have this, there's, you know, there's different personalities. I'm sure they express their joy in different ways, and I'm sure they're not all equally elated and expressing it in a uniform fashion, but the, the consensus is that there's joy amidst these 70 disciples. They had enjoyed notable success, and they are rejoicing. And although we'll get to verse twenty, and the Lord says, "Don't rejoice in this, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven." I don't think we should take that to mean that when the Lord favours His church, that there's to be no expression of joy by His people. I'm not taking it that way. He is focusing upon the hearts and He is he's getting them back and He calibrating them to the, the essential, unchangeable truths. But I, I don't take it to mean that He is somewhat rebuking them for an expression of joy in the success that they have known, as if there's some sinful expression of joy that they are reflecting in this. They're not. They are not. The Lord's people love to sing when they see the deliverances of the Lord. I mentioned Exodus 15, I think it was, on Wednesday night. And after the deliverance across the Red Sea, immediately the Lord's people break into song. And rightly so. Turn to Psalm 126. Psalm 126. This is a great psalm that comes to mind in terms of just the natural response to the Lord's favor in kingdom business and seeing His name glorified. Psalm 126. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Now, this obviously gets... You know, there's a part of the the essence of the gospel that's at the foundation of this. The deliverances of the Lord, the salvation of the Lord. But here in this context, it is expressed in a very tangible way. They are a people in captivity. They go on then, they're reflecting on this because they are again currently in captivity. Verse 4, turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. There's a need for a repeat occurrence of what had happened. The Lord's People and their experience is not consistently always the same. But there are these seasons, these 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 pockets, these windows, these these moments where he is pleased to turn the captivity of his people, and their mouths are filled with laughter and their tongues with singing. It is the natural response, indeed the right response to fevers from the Lord. And so when you have experiences of that, when, when you when you when you, indeed, when you have the sense that the Lord has maybe answered a particular prayer or condescended to a particular need and, and shown mercy in a particular area, or whatever, it is right to, to rejoice, not just in the fact that I am Christ's, but in many of the benefits and the mercies that are extended to us as his people. To rejoice. To, to, For example, you, you go out one day or you, you, this person you've been working with for years and, and you get an opportunity, just, just this one day, to talk to them about the Lord. And you've looked for this opportunity maybe for months, perhaps even longer, and you've, you've longed just to, just to say something, just to bring the conversation around to Christ. And on that day you come home because you've had that opportunity and there's, there's joy in the heart. When there's news of God delivering others, when he, there's a measure of success shown and experienced in aspects of the Lord's work, God's people should rejoice. And, I, and, I, and I'm convinced of this, particularly we'll get to Luke 15 eventually, where you have the shepherd illustrating this very clearly when he leaves the 90 and nine. He goes after the one that is lost. And when he has found it, he places it on his shoulders rejoicing. And he comes home and he says, Rejoice with me, for I found the sheep that was lost. He is calling joy from the angels of heaven, from all the hosts of glory, to rejoice with him. And I don't see a whole lot of difference between that and what's happening here in verse 17. The 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. We We have seen things happen. So when we think of joy and success, it's somewhat natural. It's natural, natural to express joy when we see a measure of success in the Lord's work. Secondly, it's somewhat surprising as well. The seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy, thy name. There's, there, there seems to be a sense of surprise here. Now, now, there's some debate over whether their surprise is because of what happened, that devils are subject to them, or the extent of what happened. Is it just the, the extent of what they saw in, in this regard? If you go back up to verse 9, they were told that they could heal the sick that are therein. But the Seventy were not told what the Twelve were told, if you go back to chapter 9, verse 1, when He called His twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. That language is not used in relation to the Seventy. So, some, you know, they, they wonder, well, well, maybe, you know, they're surprised at it because the Lord didn't expressly say that devils would be subject to them. Or it may just be that detail's not given, though it was taught or... It was implied by the sense that that heal the sick, that kind of incorporates perhaps the idea. And so really it's not so much about what was done, it was just the extent of it. It far exceeded what they could ever imagine. It doesn't really matter too much, but I just meditate on that for your benefit. But the the, the real point here is that they are surprised. They are surprised. There's something that has surprised them. Even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. They saw more than their faith grasped. And I thought about that. I was, I was you know, musing on this thing. They saw more than their faith grasped. And I, 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 was, I just preached to myself. I said, that's a good prayer, isn't it? That's a good prayer. Lord, help me to see more than my faith can grasp. It's basically what the man said when he said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. There's a measure that I see, but I know there's lots I don't see. Please, have mercy. Please don't be limited by the measure, the the limitations of my faith. So we could pray that tonight. Lord, help me to see more than my faith can grasp. Help me, Lord. Help me to see more done. Help me to see more accomplished. Grant that I may see things occur that exceed what I even pray for. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above what we can ask or think. Do you believe it? Do you? Do you believe it? Do you believe we have a God that would see us in our pitiful prayers, acknowledging the limitations of our faith, and we're telling Him we, we just, we don't believe. We struggle to believe. Please, Lord, don't let that limit your work. Don't let that inhibit the outpouring of your Spirit and the product of your striving among men. The Lord is kind. Oh, He has no time for unbelief. He doesn't. He doesn't have time for unbelief. He, that is rebuked. That is plainly sin. But when you have the, the humble soul acknowledging, look, I believe, help thou my unbelief, The Lord is very merciful. Also then, it is entirely of Christ. As a joy and success, it is natural, somewhat surprising, but it is also entirely of Christ. Verse 17 ends, that the devils are subject unto us through thy name. They have not missed the reason why they have seen this. It has nothing to do with them. They're not coming back saying, we must be... The greatest preachers, like it must be about us. They're, they're, I, I'm I'm really gifted in this. I, I, I find I, clearly I found my calling. No, no, they know it's all due to Christ, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians three verse seven. Neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. It is the Lord who does the work. That is why our psalm this morning and how it begins is important for us, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto Thy name give glory. It's the Lord. Salvation is not of us. Deliverance is not of man. Salvation is of the Lord. Deliverance is from Him. So joy and success, that helps us to meditate a little bit on verse 17, I trust. We come and move on to verses 18 and 19 where we see joy, Over Satan, joy over Satan. Verse 18, and he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Note with me first of all in verse 18, Satan's fall begun. Satan's fall begun. What does verse 18 mean? He said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. When did Jesus see Satan as lightning fall from heaven? What does he mean by fall? And what does he mean when he says he fell as lightning from heaven? What's going on here? What was helpful for me to notice in verse 18 is the tense of the verb, I beheld. Because it's in the imperfect and that immediately, I think, opens up the text. I beheld. is not I beheld as in there was one point, one season, one event, and I saw something. But I continually saw. I continually saw what he goes on to say. And that's what the imperfect tense helps us to understand what's going on here. It removes then the idea that something happened at one point in history. Thus, it dismisses any thought that what he's referring to here is the original fall of Satan from heaven. It's not going back to that which precedes Genesis, as it were, the Genesis chapter 3, the fall of Satan from heaven. It's not not dealing with that. That was a one-time event, and the grammar doesn't seem to fit with that. Nor is it with a specific intention of referring to the cross either, though obviously what happens here is only possible because of the cross. So what does it mean? Our Lord is victorious over Satan. He is. He always has been in one sense. But with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and with His life and death and resurrection, there is a clear, clear expression in Scripture of His victory over Satan. We are to ponder this. For example, when we read in Colossians chapter two, verses thirteen and following, when Paul says, "In you being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it." In the cross there is a triumph over powers, that is, satanic powers, wicked powers, all the powers that hold men, destroy men, damn men, there is victory through the cross. In Hebrews 2 verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, that's Christ, also himself likewise took part of the same. That is, he took humanity. That's a simple way of stating what Hebrews two fourteen is saying. He took humanity to what end? That through death. You see, God can't die. God cannot die. So the Son of God takes humanity that through death He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. So there is a victory. There's a victory that is accomplished at the cross. But as I say, I don't believe verse 18 is referring to Satan's fall originally or with a direct intention of making us think about the cross. Both the grammar and the context are in keeping with the ministry of the Seventy. The Seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through Thy name. And He said unto them, I beheld. I, was, I kept behelding. The idea was that He kept seeing Satan as lightning fall from heaven. And then goes on to say, Behold, I give you. Go on to proceed in what they would experience. So it seems to me that verse 18 is is plainly Christ giving a window into what He saw as they ministered in these towns and villages to which He sent them. He saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. He, He saw what was going on. This is a wonderful encouragement when you think that the cross is yet to come. It's, it's like the Lord just pulls back. Here, here's, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to take place because of the work that I am doing. I say that not that we should expect that previous to this, Satan was as lightning falling from heaven. That, that, this was not the norm, this is unusual. But it's as if prior to the cross, the Lord is, it sees fit to kind of pull back and give an insight into what will happen because of His cross. And they have had a taste of it. I say that in light of John chapter 12, and you may want to turn there, John 12, with the, the young adults on Friday. We meditated in John 12 for a little time. And I want us to move a little further from where we were On Friday evening, verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Now, now, why now? What is he saying? If you go back up, you will find that he has said the hour has come. The hour that he must be glorified. Previous in John's gospel, he said the hour is not yet. The hour is not yet. No, the hour has come. And the Son of God is going to die. It's all, it's all tying in. This, this hour, this, this appointment, this time, this season, to which everything has been culminating, He is going to lay down His life. And at the same time that He is laying down His life, you have this, this same truth. Now, as I die, as I offer myself without spot unto God, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This, he said, signifying what death he should die. He's going to die and is going to bring judgment. And the prince of this world is going to feel the power of his death. Put plainly, the cross of Jesus Christ brings a shift in the experience of the Lord's people here upon the earth. But we, he, we have to be careful Because I know, as soon as you start talking in language that Satan falls as lightning from heaven, that is, he suddenly is coming down, This this sudden destruction, as if he is being pulled from his power, from his seat of authority. Well, then immediately the question goes, well, why do we still see the efforts and the works of Satan manifest in our day? I mean, even in the time of the apostles, Satan was still working. He was still hindering, to use the language of 1 Thessalonians 2, I think it's verse 18. Satan hindered us. He is still in in some way exercising power. And yet there's this plain language that by the cross of Jesus Christ, there is success that diminishes that power that in some way is pulling Satan off his self-exalted position of enthroning himself in this world And key to his fall is the preaching of the gospel. I know that Satan likes to, he's like a bad celebrity, always seeking to draw attention to himself, because good or bad publicity, there's no such thing as, as bad publicity. Just keep attention on himself. And he wants nothing more for you to imagine that he is reigning, he is ruling, and he is thwarting the efforts of God's people and the extension of Christ's kingdom. He wants nothing more for you than for you to imagine that that it's all a waste of time, that, that the furtherance of the kingdom cannot occur, that his power is too great. He wants nothing more than to fill your mind with a sense of his power and to imagine that he is in control of what's going on. Turn to Revelation 20. I know it's controversial, but, well, so what? (laughs) Turn there anyway. And I'm not here to convince you of how you should interpret Revelation 20, but I, I will endeavor just to show you something that, I think is always important to keep in mind. Revelation 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more, Till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. Now there are varying ideas about what's going on here. But it is not without merit. Let me put it at least in this language, it is not without strong merit in the history of the church, in the understanding of most some of the most eminent Bible scholars that have ever walked that you depend upon and I depend upon and most Reformed preachers depend upon and even outside the Reformed camp depend upon, when it comes to understanding the Word of God, many, many of them, they see not this as future but as now. And of course, the immediate response is what I've already indicated. How could it be that Satan, the devil, is bound when he still hindering, as Paul says, as I've noted already, and other language that we'll get to in just a moment that clearly indicates he's doing something. How can someone bow and do something or anything? But what we fail to understand is there's a progressive aspect to the destruction of Satan. Look, look at history. If you examine history, you'll find that there, there are wars that went on I mean, you think 20 years in Afghanistan's bad. There are wars that have gone on for centuries. I mean, over 200 years and more. And this, this kind of progressive grind of, of the battle. Well, well, the battle between, or rather, let me say, the, the opposition of Satan to Christ is a multi-millennial battle. And he constantly endeavors to fight against, resist to thwart what he can when it comes to the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look at the Old Testament, you can see that clearly he has a certain dominion over the nations. The truth is almost exclusively through most of the history in Israel. The truth is not widely known. People don't understand. They're not aware of the truth. The nations of the world are in darkness. And as soon as Christ arrives, things begin to change. And part of that change, the most significant perhaps part of that change in terms of the success of His Word... And the extension of his kingdom is that nations are now responding to the gospel. People that didn't know anything about the truth. that weren't aware of any truth at all. It's not like they're all, everyone's being converted. Again, don't get me wrong. None of these are to be taken as absolute statements. And every nation, all of a sudden, every single person in every nation, that that's the idea. That when it says the nations then flow into Christ, that every single person is intended but you have the Word of God taking root in lands that never had the Word of God. You have the worship of God in places where there never was the worship of God. You have the depositing of truth in lands that have never known it. And forever they're transformed. And some of those lands, uh, new times of, of, of positive leavening, where the Word spreads and spreads and it becomes more and more Christian, Other lands, of course, they go through ebbs and flows where maybe the Word was dominant. You think of North Africa, a time when it was so largely Christian, dominated by the Word of God. And yet today, now that has completely turned the other way, largely speaking. Other places, you know, I I could go on. The point is this. The Word has made an influence, and the, the limitations then, This this binding of Satan is in a particular way, that is that he should deceive the nations no more. That he is unable to inhibit a person who simply says, I'm going to this land with the Bible, I'm going to preach the Word of God. Satan has no answer for it. And that's evident today. He still works, he still strives, he still resists, but he is unable to keep nations in darkness in the way he did prior to the cross. That's a fact. You're not looking at global history if you can't see that. And we have had wonderful recent examples, wonderful recent examples when we think of places like Korea, I know the north is still shut and we're not entirely sure to what degree God's Word is making an impact there. It's very hard to tell. But 150 years ago, the south area, I mean, it, <laughs> there's no Christianity there. And when it's certainly a mixed bag today, as it always is, the church is always a mixed bag. There's no getting around. The largest Presbyterian churches on earth are in Korea. And it's all just happened in the last 100, 150 years. I mean, there's nothing there. And then there is what there is today. How does that happen? China, it's the same. We we're watching it now with, with Iran. Iran is coming under the power of the Word. It is growing at a rate of 8% or more. It doesn't seem much, but you, you compound that over time. Whatever your understanding of eschatology, it is clear from verse 18 and... I'll say verse 19 as well when we get to it. It is clear that this is not a period, a dispensation, an epoch, whatever word you want to use, where we have to think that there's no victory for the Lord's people. That is false. False. This is a time of victory for the church it is. We, we want it to be uniform. So if it's a time of victory in the church, then everyone must experience the same amount of victory precisely the same way all the time. And that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Just, just look at the letters to the churches. Read them. Are they all knowing the same thing? Is it it uniform? They're all in Asia Minor. Are their experiences all perfectly uniform? Was Paul's ministry perfectly uniform? Did he see happen in Athens what he saw in Ephesus? Or what he saw in Corinth? Or what he saw in Philip? Was it uniform? No, it's not uniform. Even through the same instrument. During the same time. But we are, we are living, we are living, beloved. Again, adding, let me just, <laughs> adding to the baseline joy that we'll get to. Your names are written in heaven. Adding to that is this indication that Satan's fall has begun. It's not final. The future destruction will happen. He'll be cast into the lake of fire. His judgment will be sealed and settled at that point. But just because the final destruction has not taken place does not mean that there isn't this ongoing breaking down of His powers and frustrating of His efforts to maintain what He's had for millennia, the nations of the world. Christ has said He will come when? When the gospel is in all nations. He says his, his, his church, He will build it and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There will be advance, ongoing advance. Yes, ebbs and flows in different experiences, in different locations, and different nations, but there will be. Just step back and you will watch. You will watch. Yes, you will see Christ bringing down Satan. Where are the amens? You don't believe it. You don't believe it. Because NBC, ABC, MSNBC, whatever, they all, all, they, they're all telling you, the doom and gloom. And many of the publications, Christian publications, are full of doom and gloom. And all you can see is the doom and gloom and who's in the White House. The, yes, the person in the White House is the final indication of whether Christ is succeeding in His purpose to reach the nations or not. No! No! No, He's just a tool! He is a tool! And if He actually turns against the church, it will be to the advantage of Christ's kingdom. That's not what... We don't pray for it. We don't want wicked men to be in power. The wicked man of power doesn't stop Christ. (laughs) Dare me, just read the New Testament. You see that for yourself. So this is is a period of victory. Go to Psalm 67. Psalm 67. And, and, And when you read your Old Testament, please pay attention to the expectation of the psalmist and the prophets and other passages of the Word of God. This is just one example. Psalm 67, God, be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, that thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving health among all nations, thy Savior, I think Gil pointed out, thy Savior among all nations. Let the people praise thee, O God, let all the people praise thee. O oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou shalt judge the poor right the people righteously, and govern the nations upon earth. Let the people praise thee, O God, let all the people praise thee. Then shall the earth yield her increase, and God, even our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Look at this this tiny little geographical pocket in the middle of the world. And this is how they're singing. This is how they're singing. They get up on their Sabbaths and they sing like this. They sing songs of victory. God gave them songs of global victory for His kingdom. Though they were in this tiny little part of the world where it seemed like nothing was being accomplished. Satan's fall has begun. That's what verse 18 is. Jesus is seeing it. They come back with joy, surprised at the extent of success they have known. And he says, I beheld, I kept beholding, I kept seeing Satan as lightning fall from heaven. I I, I saw it. I saw it. But then we come, Satan's fall continued. Not only Satan's fall begun, but Satan's fall continued. Verse 19 Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Is this literal? If it's literal, is it permanent? And so are you to, you know, just with your bare feet out in the yard, tread on serpents and scorpions. None, None of them can ever harm you. are you to understand this? There may be some allusions here. I'll not take time to turn to them. Deuteronomy 8, verse 15 particularly, and the language also of Psalm 91, where he says, For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in the ways, in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. And whether you're reading Deuteronomy 8 or Psalm 91, both passages are assurances of divine protection and unusual prosperity because of what the Lord is doing for them. So, in alluding to language like that, is the Lord indicating then that there should be this literal experience, or is it spiritual? The key to grasp, verse 19, is to just pause, just think about it for a minute. So, so let's skip over the serpents and scorpions and see what he says. And over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. He is driving to the point that they will have power over the enemy. That's the real point. And the power over the enemy is authority over the enemy. It is that as, as they face the enemy in their endeavors, Satan doesn't have authority and dominion to prevent them. That's the basic sense of what he's saying. And it ought to be obvious then that speaking of treading on serpents and scorpions is is imagery that isn't literal. Unless you're willing to concede that over all the power of the enemy, since that's really the point, over all the power of the enemy, that in some way, the enemy has some peculiar control over serpents and scorpions that is distinct from other creatures of the earth. That, that we need particular protection from ser- literal serpents and scorpions because Satan in some way uses them to attack us. I mean, I mean, if you start to think that way, you realize it's a nonsense. That's, that's clearly not what's in view. It's not that these these particular creatures, scorpions and serpents, Satan somehow uses against them. The the real point is that, that they have an enemy. And those things that normally would be a threat to man, that man would be afraid of, they don't have to be afraid of. There's protection for them. Whatever they face, there will be protection. Just as he said in Psalm 91. Turn to Romans 16. Romans chapter 16. From verse 17, the apostle warns of those that cause divisions. And they bring offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned. Avoid them. Verse 18, They that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I am glad, therefore, in your behalf. But yet I would have you... Uh, I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. They were facing difficulty in this particular manner that there were, there were those causing division. They were threatening the work. Right? They're threatening the work. You have these churches in the city, and they're being threatened by the vision within. And when Paul points that out and encourages them to continue on in the battle, he says, "The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly." I'm without getting into it too much, but the simple idea behind this language is that there will come, there will come. It's not looking future. There will come. If you continue to labor in the way I've said, you will see, you will see Satan's effort through these individuals crushed. The diligent labor in the word, the continue. Faithful exposition and teaching and instruction and living the Christian life. The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet. Shortly, it will happen. We don't need to be worried about it. John Gill speaks in this passage of Genesis chapter three fifteen about the seed of the woman bruising the head of the serpent. In light of that text, he says. Um, If I can quote from here, he says, "...which has had its accomplishment in Christ," that's Genesis 3.15, "...who has not only only destroyed the works of the devil, but him himself, and spoiled his principalities and powers, and bruised him and them under his feet, when he led captivity captive. And though, not this, and though for the trial of the graces of his people, Satan is permitted to attack them in various shapes, yet... In a short time he will be bruised under their feet, as he is already under their Lord and masters. In other words, Satan is a tool. He is a tool. He is a tool in the Lord's hand. And he utilizes him even in ways that may apparently seem to frustrate the kingdom. And yet he uses it. He uses it. I can think of at least one way that it's used, that it is absolutely crucial for us, that it's used in the way, even in the context of, of Romans 16, and that is this. When you have false brethren in the church, you don't want them there without being exposed. And so when Satan begins to utilize them to bring disharmony, harmony, and it is confronted and faced with men that will actually take their task and deal with the issue then, as it says in 1 Corinthians 11, that there must be divisions among you that they which are approved of God may be made manifest. The Lord uses opposition. He uses division. He uses that. He allows that to to purify the church, to get rid of those who, who are not on board and endeavor to actually thwart His work and bring impurities into His bride. And so Satan's just a tool. He's just a tool. He will bruise Satan. Christian, maybe you're going through some struggle right now where it appears that the Lord has given you over to satanic attack and difficulty. I plead this, that your God will bruise Satan onto your feet shortly. So going back to our text, very quickly, my time is almost gone. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all power, all the power of the enemy. That is, whatever you face, whatever you deal with, where Satan attacks you, he uses it, language that is designed to instill fear, those things that man fears, scorpions and serpents and so on. But the real heart of it is the the power, the authority of the enemy. I'm giving you authority over him. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. That doesn't mean to say that you won't have affliction. Doesn't mean to say there won't be persecution. The simple point is this. Nothing he does will in some way destroy you. Will hurt you in any meaningful way. And so even if you're imprisoned, it won't hurt you. If you're martyred, it won't hurt you. I mean, if you were to take it literally and say nothing will hurt you to imagine that therefore there's no martyrs. Well, how come? What happened to the twelve and many others? What happened to them? They were martyred. Were they hurt? In the understanding of this text, no, they were not hurt. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let Let them take it. Let them take it. So finally, joy in salvation. Joy in salvation. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not, verse 20, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Christ here cautions, not calling them out in some sin, but he cautions them that their instrumentality in the extension of his kingdom is, is not the primary reason for believers to rejoice. The primary reason? Your names are written in heaven. Do not lose sight of that which is fundamental to your joy. And there may be included in this the sense that there will be days when it won't be just as successful for you. And what will you do then? Will you have no joy? If you go through a period of ministry where it faces times of frustration are you going to give up? No, continue to sing joyfully because your name is written in heaven. Written in heaven is a likely reference to the book of life. Many references to that throughout Scripture, and I can't take time to deal with them here tonight. But simply put this, it's language that indicates that in heaven, this book of life, there are names there known by God And those names that are there, those are the ones going to heaven. Now, there are certain passages that I'd have in this idea of blotting out of the book, but I think usually the indication there is that's humanly speaking, um, and is kind of our relationship to it because we see people in the church at times fall away or threaten to fall away. So that's the sense. But really, ultimately, there's this book, and it's solidified. There are people there or rather their name's there, and they're forever there. And so let us not miss the application, the simple application to everyone here tonight. Is your name there? Is it? And how do you know? How do you know? Because there's no one on earth, nowhere on earth rather, no library or no place, sacred, holy place, where you can go to find this book and say, oh, yep, my name's there, I don't have to worry. You you don't have access to it that way. So how do you know your name is written in heaven? Again, think of all we've dealt with and everything. All of it, all of it's secondary to this point. Is my name written in heaven. And how can I know? How can I know my name is written in heaven? Because if it's not, if I'm not one of His, I'm lost. We go back to what we considered this morning. We're lost. We're staring at the judgment without any protection, without any clothing, without any righteousness, without any Redeemer. Is your name written in heaven? Young people, is your name written in heaven? How do you know? You'll find out the same way your parents know that their name is written in heaven. How do they know their name is written in heaven? They have committed themselves entirely to the sovereign of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ. Those that are in union with Christ must be where Christ is. Those that love our Lord Jesus Christ in truth, those that name the name of Christ and depart from iniquity, they are His. And they will be there. They will. And I look down upon this congregation, I have no power to write your name in this book. I can't even tell you for sure that your name is written there. I don't have that authority. All I am is a signpost to tell you that if you want your name written there, you go to Christ. You go to Christ. He's the one. If you're in Christ, salvation is in Him. Going to heaven is by Him. No man cometh unto the Father but by Jesus Christ. So you don't, yes, Why there's language that raises sort of thoughts of mystery, what does that mean, how do I find out if my name is there, it's an indication that there's a certain number of people, not everyone. Not everyone. Oh, oh, certainly that's implied, isn't it? It's implied that there are certain names not there. But don't get bogged down in the mystery about whether my name is there. The, the real question simply is, am I in Christ? Are my sins, all of them, washed away? Did I sing and cannot be with a sense of personal testimony? Do I know that experience of being liberated from the burden and guilt of sin? I know that joy of knowing whatever goes on. My name is written in heaven. That is, I've trusted Christ. I belong to Him. No matter what happens, I'm ready. I am ready. And boys and girls, you can be ready. You can. Talk to your mom. Talk to your dad about it. Talk to them about how you can be ready. Frequently discuss, children. Frequently discuss the matter of your readiness and your preparedness for heaven. It's so important that you grow, you grow knowing, settled in your heart, I belong to Jesus. I'm His. Our time is gone. Please, whatever you do, don't leave here tonight without thinking about this the this simple, this simple question. Is my name written in heaven? You need, to, you need to be able to answer that in the affirmative. Forget about me. Forget about everyone else. For, just forget about it all. Just, just shut in with the Lord. Talk to the Lord even before you leave here tonight. Talk to the Lord about this matter, the uncertainty that's in your heart. When you think about whether or not your name is written in heaven. And don't forget about it or pass over it until you're sure. You are sure. The transaction has taken place, the deal is done. I belong to Christ, and I have surrendered my life and the entire future of my existence into His hands. I'm a Christian, and I will live for my Lord he died on that cross for me he shed his blood for me he did all that for me I'll give myself to him let's bow together in prayer If I can help you, please don't be shy to indicate your need for some counsel tonight. I'd be happy to talk with you. I'm not the kind of person that puts unnecessary pressure on anyone. But I'm happy to open the Word of God and talk to you about the things that are going on in your mind, what you're struggling with, what you're wrestling over, and endeavor by the Lord's help to serve you and the needs of your soul. Lord, we pray that we might be a heavenly-minded people so that as we traverse through a world where the servants of the devil try to bombard our minds with doom and gloom, That we will see what we have in Christ and live continually in a state of joy for the joy of the Lord is our strength. I pray that every Christian, no matter what they're facing, may may have an infilling, a, a baptism of the Spirit that enables them to rejoice this very moment, this very hour. Some are carrying heavy burdens and there are real, genuine cares. But put joy in their hearts. I pray, Lord, that you'll bless everyone involved in ministry, every Christian trying to reach lost people. It feels like a barren time. It feels like a time where there is little reaping. But, Lord, we are looking for a harvest. And we labor and faint not in the expectation that the God of peace will bruise Satan under our feet shortly. This we can only do through Jesus Christ. So we pray that we may abide in the vine and know His power. Hide Thy word in our hearts. Go with us in whatever we face this week. Bless the food. And sanctify the fellowship of those that go downstairs and talk here before they go home. And May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.